Welcome, everybody, to Fear and Loathing in Cinema podcast. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the hosts with the most, the two gentlemen that I would like to start a street hockey team in the future and drink all the water and pretend that we're in the 80s. Dan Moran and Preston Barta. What's up, Dan? What's up? I'm excited for this one. Fully hydrated and ready to talk about our uh, lack of water supply. <laughs> Correct. And Preston, how are you? Doing good. Playing with my magic balls. You're, yeah. Hey, the magic glowing balls to you, sir. Uh, we're going to talk about this movie that kind of can be considered the prequel to Spaceballs. But this is 1986 Solar Babies, directed by Alan Johnson, written by Waylon Green, and produced by the legend Mel Brooks. Yes, that Mel Brooks. And starring an insane cast that is definitely reminiscent of the 80s, but you can also include Pappy Pass the Biscuits uh oh daniel <laughs> flower hour himself charles Durney in there as well as well as ugh from critters terrence man uh oh my god this movie solar babies we're gonna discuss this um this film came out in november 26 1986 it was made on a 25 million dollar budget and we're gonna get to that in a second but the movie only grossed like 1.5 million dollars that being said, the movie currently right now on Rotten Tomatoes has a zero percent rating. But <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna change that. We're gonna change that today. Uh, so first off, Solar Babies. Um, I'll start out. The first time I saw this, I did not see this in the movie theater. I saw this on VHS, probably rented out a video store back in 1986 or 1987. I was five or six years old. Um, and I fell in love with this movie. Uh, I mean, I didn't have really a pre preconceived notion going into Solar Babies. Other than that, it was a group of kids, future, um, and street hockey. And after watching it, I loved it. Uh, I loved it. After watching it today, um, I mean, I watched this again back when the Blu-ray came out for Kino Lober in the U.S. back uh, several years ago. And then I watched it again last night, and I got to say, it might be my nostalgia that is blinding me in the eyes, but I still love this movie. I still think it's great. So I got to go first with Preston. I know you've seen this before, and we're going to get to you in a second, but Dan Moran <laughs> in Austin, Texas, had never heard of this movie. He had never seen this movie. So Dan watched this movie for the first time, probably 24, 48 hours ago, and he went in basically blind. And Dan, please tell me your initial thoughts in a few sentences of your experience. I respect your nostalgia. I believe had I seen this as a child, I would have thought it was cool too. And maybe it would bring back some happy memories like many films that we've discussed on this podcast before. For myself, as the adult that I am watching that movie the other day, this is a heaping pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I, I, there are some positive things I can pull from it. 
Um, there are some parts where I was laughing at the corniness of the 80s and obviously we'll get to all the movies that it, it, I feel like it's cribbing from and taking taking wild liberties with. But man, I did not, I did not think this was a very good movie at all. Um, we'll, we'll get into it. The cast, though. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into why it is, and I mean, you're not in the majority. You're not in the majority. You, are, I mean, no. you are in the majority. People hate this movie. Zero yeah. percent. That's rare. I, I feel I feel mean saying I hate it because I don't hate it. I was just like, I understand why nobody saw this in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get, get to it. that. Yeah, you get it. You get it. We're we're gonna jump into it. But Preston, you've seen this movie. You are kind of a maestro of nostalgia you like <laughs> he is preston i've known know. preston for a long time preston the nostalgia hits him in the eyes it splooges in his face a lot like me too and i'm curious preston coming to this again very very recently and in the last several hours what do you think are you, are you still into solar babies were you ever into solar babies what was your experience yeah, I'm very much the critic from Ratatouille, except I display my Ratatouille everywhere. <laughs> so much so that I still have my kid copy of Solar Babies on VHS. Uh, kept it after all these years. Yeah, I saw it when I was six or seven, two. But Dan, to be fair, I grew up with movies like Three Ninjas, Adventures in Dinosaur City, that are like straight prehysteria. They're, they're like straight to DVD or straight to VHS movies. And I go back and watch them now. They're kind of heartbreaking because they suck so bad. But to be um, fair, to be fair, yeah, I I still um, I guess like it's interesting to watch this now many years later as an adult and just recognize everything that is completely wrong with it. And I, and, and everything that Dan's going to say about it is going to be 100% accurate. But yes, I still have like a nostalgic heart for it. And there's so many things that I appreciate. It puts me back in that time when uh, things were, were simpler. Um, <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah, I, it's watch it watching it now. I think it's 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 more fascinating, like what was going on behind the scenes, um, and like how Mel Brooks like really struggled to make this movie. He had to put like a second mortgage on his house, went broke, um, and just like all the fights that were happening. Like the original writer was an artist, and he developed the concept in the eighties. He worked across the street from Andy Warhol since we've been talking about like soup cans and stuff. If uh, you listen to my bloody podcast, we were talking about another movie. Um, so everything that was going on behind the scenes, people getting fired, uh, new writers coming in and just how the original vision just like really uh, went changed beyond what it was and how they just had these hopes that it was going to be on something on par with Star Wars or thunder uh th well, thunderdome um mad max and or uh, dune dune yeah dune yeah so and, and there's going to be more movies that we we pull from in describing this so it just does feel like this like 
kind of like a terrible greatest hits collection of 80s sci-fi movies but uh also a very admirable one because there are as dan said there are some really good stuff in things there is there is i mean the movie cost 25 million dollars like sets and uh props like you're like wait how is this movie this way right dan yes and just just one thing Adventures in Dinosaur City, Prehysteria, Three Ninjas, those movies rule. I saw those <laughs> movies as a kid. And even to today, yeah. I see those and I get splashed with nostalgia. I never saw this as a kid. So I'm yeah. only seeing it as an adult and I'm like, ugh. But I guarantee you, had I seen this as a kid, I would have had a glowing orb that apparently yeah. cures diseases, but just wants to make it rain. It's like a dodgeball messiah. Yeah. It's a, um, but no, yeah. It, you can tell every single cent went into the special effects. Like these are legitimately above average for the time special effects when they're in the lab scenes and they're shooting lasers and stuff like that. Like they're not bad. Yeah. I, I I was impressed. I mean, they're not like T2 level, which comes out a couple of years later, but that's Cameron. But some of the things that happen in this movie with the special effects, I was like, I, I had to look at my on, on the internet because I was watching on lovely Pluto TV um to see like <laughs> is this a remastering is this like a um an original star wars where a special edition where the, like, someone gave the money to go back and make these special effects look good but no that's that that's was what the it original was. version so that was i was very impressed with that part of it right yeah. so with solar babies if you've seen mad max mad max fury road it's tank or it's tank thunderdome. yeah thunderdome or even tank, tank girl, girl. Yeah. Um, the movie is about like an evil corporation in a barren wasteland where there's no water hoarding all the water. Uh, there's a lot of orphans they keep to work their <laughs> grueling, uh, mines and stuff like that, that they treat like shit. And they have a street hockey team. That's a futuristic, like rollerball street hockey thing. And, uh, that's kind of what it is. They're trying to get it to Quidditch. rain and all they yeah, Quidditch, Quidditch, or, um, Oh hell, there was something I was thinking of. Cricket or something. Cricket. Yeah. So there's there's that element. And so how the movie was pitched to executives was the little rascals in the future. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have a great clubhouse. They do. They like, have a great treated, clubhouse. They're orphans treated like shit from a or corporation who we have no idea what their actual goal is for hoarding all this water and their mining, but like their clubhouse is awesome. Like their clubhouse is like kind of cool. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's awesome. great. Yeah, and so everybody's kind of in knee pads and helmets, and they have their hockey sticks. You know, so like being back in five or six years old, you're just like, that's awesome. Today, no, but it it was great back then. And of course, in part of that story, you have like this very religious kind of sect. That comes into the story here where this giant or that giant like this crystal ball glowing orb comes in and basically plays the part of Jesus Christ. He's it's able or he is able to like cure and do things and, you know, all this stuff. We'll get into the religious part of a second, but <laughs> uh, Preston, <laughs> um, coming back and watching this. Part of what maybe makes the movie not work for so many people 
is that maybe it's kind of really strong mix of very serious mean drama that goes right into very silly dumb hokey kid fun and it's like does it on a dime and it's like oh man we were taking each other out of this because i think the story's there i think the characters are there i think the tone you probably had the filmmakers and writers and you have mel brooks and you're just like we want to make these kids we don't know how to do it nonchalantly or really blend it i don't know preston talk to me about this yeah so like when it starts out it's a bit overwhelming with the information that comes in because it's giving you like the history of what's going on in the world and the way that the narration is it just makes it seem like it's going to be this kind of serious movie but then there's a big section in the movie where not a whole lot happens they just kind of hang out in these spaces and they're trying to develop have some characterization there has some dynamics in place and um and yeah it gets a little silly with with the the way that they i guess try to just raise some cane or let the air out of the balloon for all that they have to do which is playing this uh this game that they play a skateball i guess that's what they call it um and yeah they're everything that's going on with the ball uh the way they have a like a dance sequence or something with one of the guys that's well well let's let's talk about that because okay. everybody's kind of messing with the ball and then they get to the black guy where the music changes to more of like a hip-hop beat and he's yeah. break dancing and to watch that now i laugh but it's like oh man would that fly today because it's very on the nose you know because everybody else is kind of like playing with it normally and then the guy starts beatboxing with it right yeah yeah did did that make you feel uncomfortable or like with things today uh i didn't i didn't really think about that too much i just kind of thought it was just really silly and yeah they're bringing things from like the modern world and putting it into this it's kind of like when uh no no, uh, shade at uh prey because i do like it but the way that they kind of speak seems like modern modern to yeah. a degree and so it kind of takes you out of it a little bit but this movie is just so messy from the start that it's just like eh, anything goes kind of thing yeah and that's what what the tone was like so dan watching this for the yeah. first time i imagine your brain was about to fucking explode with like what tone and theme are we going with here i can't yeah i don't know logical blunders yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'll be honest with you. When it opened up, I was like, wow, this is a little like Preston was saying, this is a little bit more serious. They said it was about like an ice skating kids. I mean, sorry, rollerblading kids playing weird hockey and stuff. And it's when the voiceover and everything kind of opened up, I was like, man, is this a little darker than I thought it was? No, it immediately turned into them playing like roller hockey and then the dance off scene, which, of course, I YouTubed to show my wife to be like this. Look at this thing. And actually one of the first YouTubes that comes up from it was like, is it like top 20 worst scenes in film history or something like that? And it's like number 18 and it's the, the kids like doing his dance moves. He's doing the pop and lock. Ball. Yeah. Bodhi the ball. And, he, he, uh, he booty bumps it over to Jason Patrick. Yeah. yeah it's, Bo die. It's yeah. Bo die. And it's yeah. It, again, it's, I feel like this is a theme with this, with this podcast in general but 
they were straddling the line between several things because it's honestly, we never found out what the eco protector it was really up to. Seemed yeah. like other places seemed to be operating. Like, what was their end goal? They were just hoarding all this water. Like, we didn't see, like, were they selling it to people? Like, was there other? I'm not saying we need to get into this whole thing, but like, yes, they're the bad guys. And I know they're the bad guys because they're dressed like futuristic Nazis pretty much and keep kid orphans in cages and make them dig in pits i get that they're the bad guys but but we spent a lot of time in that lab and they're like we must destroy this little ball <laughs> very austin powers-esque you know that's what it was and maybe there was a a moment in the script or it was written out that there would be more but then again the movie studio for this movie gave them $5 million based on the little rascals pitch and then they were like okay Let's go to Spain because it costs like three pennies to shoot there. But then they were like, we want to do all this stuff. Mel, can you front your money? Hey, you, can you front your money? And they ended up fronting like $20 million for this movie out of their own pockets to get this to happen. And so maybe they just didn't have the any more money to like film that stuff so all we got was like bad guys are bad they whip kids they do this they're trying they're hoarding water but like the story yeah i may have been on their side i don't know what their plan was maybe these were bad kids i don't know yeah they're 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 (laughs) orphans they have to be bad (laughs) but parents don't want them anymore so clearly they did something wrong. Yes. <laughs> I, I I personally think that they just had shapes here and they didn't know how to fill out those shapes. I think even from the beginning, they probably the the original story was just mainly just focused on this uh game. And I think some of those other extracurricular stuff that's going on here probably got picked up by other writers or Mel Brooks. Cause I've heard that like the, the original writer like handed off to one guy and one guy worked, got paid like a hundred thousand dollars to write the script. And then apparently it was shit. And then, so the original con- the guy who came up with the treatment was like, I'm going to write it. So he, took uh started working on it on spec didn't get paid for it worked with a close friend who uh actually is a pretty good writer it was a high uh paid writer and uh then they both had to get paid and and then mel brooks came in and kind of did his own little spin on it too so i just think it just had too many people involved and they each kind of like uh, focused on different things or were g- gravitating towards certain things. And then it just kind of got away from them because even at a, in addition to all the stuff that Dan was talking about in terms of like, what's, what's going on? Like what, what, what's the purpose behind all this? There's stuff kind of, you can have the same kind of questions with the ball itself. You're like a lot of the, cause the, it gets away from them, from the kids and the kids have to go back and get it. And then there's like a, uh, a scene where the kid has it lucas haas's character has it in his hands and then they they're like no no no, we gotta go we gotta go and then he drops it so a lot of this like is like self-created problems that happen throughout and it just didn't seem like a lot of thought was put into it it's just like trying to fill out the space and stretch it out as much as they can and try to create this tension but it's not exactly there and why why does the ball like 
after it's been tortured for half the movie toward the end that it just kind of floats away and gets away and it's just like why didn't you do that in the beginning so there's just like all these kinds of like questions all throughout um but for the nonsense that it is it makes it compelling uh if you just kind of focus on little parts of it little parts of it yeah that's as a whole the movie like it's just like a cavalcade of different tones and just things are happening and they strictly happen just to get to the next scene there's no really rhyme or reason for it but like that, it's so it's so ridiculous in a way that can't be described really yeah that's very true and but that being said the movie is shot pretty well for a guy that was a choreographer that still is a choreographer who directed this movie um he didn't direct anything else after this uh <laughs> for probably good reason but i mean it looks good the performances are genuine like i think people really wanted to make this great because you have like let's we'll go through the cast you have jason patrick and jamie gertz the epitome of 80s uh jason patrick and jamie gertz went on to do lost boys jamie gertz was in um oh shit what's the Twister for a second. Well, Twister for a second, but she was in the Robert Downey Jr. Less than zero. Jimmy Gertz yeah. was the epitome of 80s. Then you have a very young Lucas Haas, who is like the cutest kid. Uh, and then you have somebody like Charles Durning, Pappy Pass the Biscuits O'Daniel from Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Uh, <laughs> as the warden, you have Terrence Mann, of course, Ugg from Critters. Uh, and then you have emily gilmore show up yeah. uh for a little bit as well from the gilmore girls and you're just like wait this is actually a pretty good cast and then peter you have De- like, uh, peter delouise from uh 21 jump street who yeah, looks exactly, exactly like jason patrick yeah he looks exactly so i was gonna say that like you know a couple you, you have somebody like a previous generation you have a guy that looks exactly like the dawson james vanderbeek you have a guy that could kind of resemble henry cavill in this movie or you uh, get billy from power rangers yeah you just it's all these people converged into this movie and I think they turned in solid performances. So like Dan Preston performance wise with these characters in this type of movie, that's gotten a 0% rating on Rotten Tomato. What do you think of their performances now? Like I going back and seeing it, I think it's genuine. I think there's charm to them. I don't think anything's monotone. I think they delivered well with it. Yeah, there's, yeah, I agree. There's some unexpected, like, dramatics. Like, Jamie Gertz, like, really brings it in some scenes, like, where she's crying, and you're like, whoa, the movie didn't help you get there. It, like, didn't support you with getting you, like, great dialogue and all these things, but they really make the most of what they have. Um, So, yeah, there's some really good dramatic scenes between Jamie Gertz and Jason Patrick uh, when they're by themselves. That's pretty good. Uh, Richard Jordan's very much the uh, twirly mustache villain, and he hams it up uh, pretty good in it. Uh, Lucas Haas is a very cute kid, and um, I don't know who else really like stood out. Uh, Ter- I like Terrence, Terrence Mann. Mann. Like we're we're gonna have to get to like a uh, one certain device toward the end that's actually really well done. Yeah, no, we, we will get to that. So, um, 
with this movie, let's talk about Terrence Mann's character. So uh, the guy who played uh, Dar Star in the movie, who's Adrian Pasdar, um, he's kind of uh, like an eco-warrior, but like he's kind of like a Native American kind of thing. He has an owl and he goes to kind of find his people and it's led by um terrence mann and they go there and they're like oh do you own the owl does anyone really own an owl he's chachari or whatever they say <laughs> and so you have this like new element it's like oh there's another faction and they're like kind of peaceful people and then they kind of live in what looks like a coney island type of place where there's like rides and fun houses and one of the how do people town, hate baby. this yeah how do you hate this movie when they walk into one of these haunted houses or like fun houses and you see all these wax people and kind of fun house stuff going on and the character goes what is this place and terrence mann goes this used to amuse people and that's like <laughs> that's so great like how do people hate this movie that line alone is wonderful and like delivered in such a great way yet did y'all i mean did that stick out to y'all in this movie like that's that's genius to me so i i'm what i'm saying is so. yeah i think with but, but in your summation dan about it being you know a turd you get these people <laughs> for like what four minutes of screen time until there's a big climactic battle that kind of takes people out <laughs> oh yeah no like like i said it's another movie that's all over the place and like that scene in particular was really good there were moments in that tire town sequence when they were talking about things that were good and interesting and then it turns into them running around clearly empty plastic oil drums and you know pushing a kid over it and you know sliding through here and it looked like they had trash bags on running around for another five minutes it was kind of all over the place but i i fully agree with you and i think like press and i both said uh it's mad max beyond thunderdome i mean i how, why did they have to pay so much for the sets of this thing why was the budget why did they just go film it down at Thunderdome because <laughs> <laughs> I expected Tina Turner to show up at one point during this movie she might have yeah. uh, Preston yeah, Smokey Robinson no yeah they did have Smokey Robinson sing the title song at the end okay so there's one element that I got to bring up that always has stuck with me in this movie and I find it so damn fascinating and amazing that nobody's kind of redone this uh and Preston, I want your take. So at back at where like the evil corporation is, they have this torture device that simulates like different types of pain and stuff to your body where they're like you're strapped down to like this holographic table almost and they can simulate ants all over your body eating you they can simulate your arm being burned off you know all this type of stuff that always stuck with me and I was like, damn. That's like some crazy stuff to put in a kid's movie. And that's terrifying. And I was like, how has no other movie kind of like done this? Because that's like a great element that is only subtly used in this. But I feel like that was like a cool part of the movie that they could have explored more. Preston, what do you think? Yeah. So I guess it's implied from when Terrence Mann's character is covered in ants that 
so it's actually it's not like just teasing the mind into thinking that like it's actually causing pain and then the pain vanishes when it's not on him mm -hmm. is that kind of so yeah, yeah. um so my son was actually sitting next to me when that came on <laughs> so, um, and uh he, he was like oh my god skip like skip it skip it and and then i was just like look away for a second and i was like see look it just kind of goes away it's just you know it's like in harry potter when he's like writing doing the thing and, and then it well i guess that kind of sticks around for a little bit but um yeah uh that kind of like uh scarecrow batman kind of thing that's going on there it's it's a really cool unique torture device i wish it i wish it had uh played a bigger part on some of the main on the main characters and it wasn't that other uh crazy device that was kind of like a swiss army knife of uh that had like you can dive into the molecular level of of things and it, it needed like I wanted that torture device to come and play a bigger part. Like maybe the bad guy should have died that way instead of the other way. Yeah, no, I uh, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I love that element. Uh, Dan, when you saw that with the with the holographic ants and the, the torture devices, what, what did you think? Oh, it was awesome. It was it was creepy. It was like I said, it, inventive and strange um especially for this time i mean it seems like that's something that we would see in today's movies and for them to be doing it back in 1986 just a really great original idea that truly made made you feel creeped out by it made you scared of something in this movie and um i don't think it got utilized to its fullest potent potential as far as really just striking some more fear or some more stakes into the story but I i'm right there with you and preston thinking that that was that was a very inventive and awesome way to utilize the technology of the time and just the sick mind that would think of a torture device yes. in the future to be like that. Like that's pretty cool. And I thought like, I always thought like, dude, if you had like, let's say somebody came in and like killed your dog and you could get them strapped into something. It's like, yeah, strap them in and like cover them in fire ants, you know, like that would just be like torture. Like amazing. John Wick, John John Wick, Wick would have been a shorter movie. Yeah, it would That's have. How he handled it. Speaking of Keanu Reeves oh, in this movie, oh, go ahead. I, I do want to go back to that torture device. Like they right. could have made a uh, like No Country for Old Men kind of movie with that thing because it's like, how far can you go? Like, what are the limitations of that device? Does it like if you got to the point where like you were frying the entire body of somebody, would they actually die within that thing? And then when they move it, it's like nothing happened we can't find out how did he die and that could be like a weird crazy serial killer movie no see that's a that's i've always thought about that because like the guy getting his hand burned and fry you're just like wait what that's like that's got to be so painful and then it goes away and just like what's happening no it let's write this movie president dan let's write this movie that's what but, this podcast is we're just rewriting these bad movies we, we are all right so now we have to talk about keanu reeves and its relationship to this movie i do firmly believe after watching this movie again that the movie speed borrowed from this movie in a certain scene because there is a part in the movie where a bridge is out and they have to jump it like a big <laughs> ass bridge that is taken out and they're not in a bus. They're not in a car. They are on roller skates. And it's about the same distance in speed. The bus jumps. But somehow the 
the kids on roller skates are able to jump it. And so this scene is edited chef's kiss because (laughs) it's, it's so painfully noticeable and awkward and bad, but it's also at the same time, so damn brilliant (laughs) that it makes me laugh and love this movie even more, even talking about that scene when they have to jump running away from the evil guys across this bridge that was probably 20, 30 feet across. So Dan, this scene, please describe your reaction. Please describe if you were happy or annoyed. What was going on? I was just so worried that they weren't going to make it and the movie was just going <laughs> to end with them falling into the chasm. It was stressful for me. It was so concerning. Thankfully, Sandra Bullock just pushed them right across at the very last second and they made it. But no, I mean, you got to have, I mean, every one of these movies at this time had to have a corny scene like this and you smile at how goofy it is, but then you're like, yeah, I get it. It's the same thing that with every Fast and Furious movie now. Well, now they're getting into every single action scene is like eye roll worthy, but there was a time where every action movie that is trying to have fun or have a little bit of tongue in cheek would have an outrageous scene that the audience knew what they were doing. Uh, I mean, we're here to enjoy it. And I think this is definitely one of those things where you kind of start to roll your eyes and you're like, now this is fun. I get it. I'm in on this. Like I didn't mind that nearly as much as some of the other stuff in the movie. Okay. Good. Okay. I'm glad you liked it. Preston. I know you love watching the cinematic artistic experiences. Um, is this where, where, your... where does this fit within the pantheon? <laughs> yeah. Is this Citizen Kane level, or is <laughs> well, well, like that? That scene particular, like, is just it's so gloriously fun because it just yeah, doesn't. It, it's so much fun because somehow outside, where everything's like so stark and there's no like life going on that they just happen to have a pathway where they can rollerblade everywhere they need to go and it's all right um so yeah to have to have that large of a gap and them just kind of swing each other over to jason patrick being the last guy that has to do it on his own with no assistance even though i don't think the assistance would have helped him much anyway um so yeah, it's it's joyous because it, the it's the period at the end of the sentence of that scene that's so great where like you what you're wanting is like oh the bad guys are coming that one of the bad guys is going to be dumb enough to ride off and die <laughs> and, <laughs> and so when one and by the way man the the things that they're driving that just kind of feel like cardboard things just kind of laid on to like a, a motorcycle, motorcycle. Or, or a go-kart or something like you can just feel like somebody can like punch through that thing um so yeah it's so much fun where one of the guys one of the bad guys does fall off and it explodes and then all the guys kind of have this like end moment at a end of a 21 jump street episode where they're like die um and then they carry on with their day. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh it's not Citizen Kane, um, but <laughs> it's got it's got some joy for what it is. Cause yeah, as soon as soon as you start to see it happen, you're like, oh yeah, every kid with like roller blades or has a bike wants to have their Dukes of Hazard moment where they jump over something and or hot lava and things like that so yeah it just kind of feeds into the your your kid mind a little bit 
Okay. All right. So now let's 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 get into the religious territory here because if you've read about this movie, the writers and the director, you know, something like that, there was a big religious part of this movie. Like they actually used um like Christianity as part of this movie and like even they even have a cult. They have a yeah. cult in it with a yeah. guy that's like a one of uh, Jimmy Gertz's character ends up being like this water princess or something. Right. Yeah. And she's it, it's weird, isn't it? Like it just like kind of changes tone and you're just like, what happened yeah. here? But with like the glowing orb, Bodai, Boda, Bodhi, um, I love how Lucas Haas always corrects the, yeah. the one guy uh, that's supposed to be like the Jesus character because he's healing people. He's doing all these magical things to save people from persecution. Uh, did y'all, I mean, I guess, Dan, first time watching it, not knowing anything about it, did you get any of the the Christian themes, the religious themes in this movie at all that come across to you? I mean, I feel like most movies with with the Savior coming to save the planet, all, all, they're always taking a little few notes from religion. Um, it was just tough to me, for me with a um, a glowing orb and a street hockey team and and the water princess and what looks to be Siegfried and Roy's like magic garden, wherever that family was that has one random deer or not deer, uh, one random like miniature pony behind a, inside of a rock enclave for it to be like lean too heavy into it. But I was sitting there the whole time, like Bodai do something, bro. Like, yeah. These kids are constantly in danger. And I know that that ruins the whole movie, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole time I'm like, okay, or teach us a little bit more about Bodai, except for the um, end, you know? Um, it's the sorry. Superman complex. It's just like, there's, it's hard to know what you need to do when you have something that's so all powerful in the film. Like you have like Captain Marvel coming in to save the day at the end of Endgame where you're like, she could have just did you know destroyed everything and made everything better but what what kind of movie would it be if it didn't yeah. if we didn't know how to throw a wrench in there every now and then right 100 percent agree with that so i'm not taking too many points off for that but no i didn't i didn't feel um I didn't feel that whatever religious stuff they were going for was executed at a particularly high level ah fun they they didn't nail it they didn't nail it nailed it yes preston (laughs) um preston what do you think about the the religious aspect of this movie i i think yeah like uh the frameworks there that you can you can see the attempt but yeah there there's just not enough done with it to where you feel like oh that was a really compelling social commentary on yada 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 or it had some even it's not like mother where it had like all these biblical things that were going on and you can see like Cain and Abel and you can see all these different things it's just like yeah uh, sure I can see the Jesus coming into this and like this is the second coming of Christ in a magic orb form uh, which is uh scratch your head worthy. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, I was more perplexed by what I was talking about earlier with like this cult that was going on. Uh, it just like, 
this guy looks like Jesus and um, I just don't know what to make of it. Like it's supposed to be like this paradise and they just up and leave without much explanation. Um, so it just seems like they go into a lot of things and there's just not much explanation. It's like there to be interesting, um, but is it interesting? I don't know. It's kind of like the problem that we were having with uh, uh, Skin Marink uh the other day on my bloody podcast where we're like we're thinking too much about this we're trying to fit all these round pegs and square holes or whatever and and it's just like maybe there wasn't that much thought put into it and it is just what it is or maybe after all these years they're like yeah that was the intention of it all along and um so i don't know it's it's uh it's a it's a dumb movie at the end of the day it's a very well, dumb movie. Well, now I want to ask uh, an, a, a question that might bring up a conversation because s- keeping in mind in 1986, this movie having the big stars in it from the 80s, being a kid's film, being sci-fi, being futuristic, being 80s roller skates. How did this movie not do better than $1.5 million? Like, think about it. Like, it's a $25 million sci-fi epic. It comes out around the holidays, kids, big stars, stuff like this of the time. Why do you think it didn't work? Do you think this was a thing of the critics back in the day saying, like, this is the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. Do not go see it. Everybody said that probably. And then nobody went to see it. Like, I don't, I'm, because it just seems like today in this world, even if critics said it was terrible, it would make more than $1.6 million. Like, it just seems, it just seems crazy to me. Um, I'm right now looking at the November 1986 box office. You've got Crocodile Dundee. The Color of Money, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, Soul Man, An American Tale. Yeah. Firewalker, Stand By Me was still in the theaters. Those are all, and Top Gun was still in the theaters. Top Gun was still in 1,500 theaters. It came out in May. In November, it was still in 1,500 theaters, getting into the top 12. So maybe it was just a situation of... um. There was way other better things. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, still. That's honestly, I'm just. I wanted to look here and see what it was, but yeah, I'm looking at the top five, and I'm trying to think of a family, uh, having a family, and being like, "What are we going to go see?" I mean, the re-release of um, Hoosiers. Maybe the name. Hoosiers was making more money than it. Yeah, probably the name too. Man, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, Solar Babies isn't exactly great because when you think of Solar Babies, you're just like, okay, this is it like Muppet Babies. Is it, you know, something similar? Is just like Solar Baby Geniuses, even though Baby Geniuses wasn't out at that time. You're just like, Solar Babies is not exactly the great. Like, I get why it's named that, but, you know, it goes into the whole Kevin Smith thing. Zach and Mary make a porno. Everybody told him not to name it that. Just call it Zach and Mary and you would have made, you know, millions more and he didn't listen so maybe i don't know maybe it was solar babies i don't know yeah it's like the teletubbies kind of kind of thing the sun or even they yeah they made like a kids movie out of the 2001 star child or something like that um 
Yeah, I don't know that that whole uh, box office thing. Just I, I really would love to go back in time and kind of see like what were the conversations around it at the time. Does Roger Ebert even have a review of this thing up? Yeah, so I guess uh, from the critical response, it does say, "Oh, not not him, but Gene Siskel on his uh, film review show, Siskel and Ebert called the film trash." <laughs> it doesn't say anything about ebert but yes they definitely talked about it though well let's also point out that there's another thing in here or i'm, I'm gonna point it out right now solar babies says it came out went wide on november 26th um but it was only in 692 theaters so did mgm not put the oh i guess so that's probably why i mean if it's not in enough theater yeah it it's opening weekend, November 26, 1986. It only went to 692 theaters. That was the widest release that it got, less than 700 theaters. Meanwhile, at that same time, you've got Hoosiers and you've got, you know, still have uh, Top Gun. Top Gun's still in over 1,500 theaters. Hoosiers is in, is in over 1,000 theaters. Stand By Me, which came out back in August is still in 900 theaters. So it may have just been a thing of sure. They put $25 million into it, but they clearly didn't feel positively enough to put the uh, theater accounts behind it in November. That is sad. That's super sad. I don't know why they would do that. That's crazy. And I'm like reading some of the critical, the critics, what they say, and they are like harsh, like they are harsh, harsh to it. Uh, and just as some of the things they're saying, it's uh, I, I, I'm not sure why, because when you watch it, you're just like, you know, this is a sweet movie. You know, people put in the time. I don't think it was trying to be pretentious at all. And I think good on Mel Brooks trying to do something out of the norm of, you know, his sillier movies. He was trying to do like a kind of a serious sci-fi film. And I don't know. I I think this movie still, I mean, it, people will say it doesn't hold up. It never held up. But like this movie is still fun to me. Like I I had a ball still watching it at 41 years of age in 2023. Like I did. And even with all its kookiness and wackiness and silly to serious scenes. But I think it works here for some odd reason. It works. Preston, do you agree? Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm actually. I guess Roger Ebert actually did write a review. He gave it two stars, so he only half hated it. I guess. <laughs> um, and it, it, he's pulling out quite a few of the things that we've talked about in terms of being positive. Um, so yeah, I guess in in all, uh, I I can recognize like probably at the time when you had movies like Road Warrior and all these other movies where it kind of has that that blueprint. Um, you can see that there were probably better versions of this movie out at the time, but yet it also just kind of inserted the the spirit of the time with the rollerblades and uh, flashlights on dogs and things like that. Uh, there's a scene where the, uh, one of the characters like catapults himself with one of those poles over a fence. <laughs> and so there's just, there's a lot of like really good stuff in there. There's a good shot when they're uh, escaping from Tire Town 
and there's a camera placed on uh, with Jason Patrick in it as he's rolling down the hill. So like, there's just like, I mean, all throughout it, you could probably take notes and just say, hey, that was actually a really good shot, or this was an interesting thing, or even like some of the things that were kind of phony and she like just poking fun at some of the the way that the the vehicles look and things like that or even some of the stuff that's going down in tire town you're like what the hell like just even like the whole like a, a tire economy that they had going on um they had like a a strip joint there and it's just like i i, I want to figure out like they're setting up things that are interesting you just, just want to be like yeah you're you're going over here you need to stay right here um so there's there's like a a lot of interesting things at play they just didn't know how to like juggle them per se and all the things that were happening uh behind the scenes like i said are probably more interesting in the movie there needs to be a, a deep making of i know there was a how uh there's that how did they do this or how the hell did this get made? How did this get made podcast from like mm -hmm. 2016 uh, that you can't find on the internet anymore. But I remember listening to it at the time and like Mel Brooks was talking about like uh, of, of what it was like making the movie at the time and uh, how um, frustrated he was by the whole experience and how scared he was for like losing his uh, just being broke and being in debt. Um and then there's like a oral <laughs> history out there from Slash Film with uh, the original uh, artist of this, uh, Motrev, or I can't, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, anyway, um, so like if you watch this, you're, you might feel compelled to do like these deeper dives uh, into it and just because it's just interesting. It's just interesting. Like even the concept art of it is interesting. Uh, there was some original, uh, like when the movie was getting made, the, the original artist went out in the desert with some kids that looked like they were from THX wearing like white suits <laughs> and helmets and stuff. And they shot it on like 35 millimeter stills and they're really good photos. And he turned it into like this, a uh, slideshow, this computerized slideshow, as it was called, and it was like ahead of its time at the at, at the time. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, I'm just. It's kind of like I wanted uh, Jodorowsky's Dune kind of documentary made about this, <laughs> even though the movie got made. But there was also the movie that didn't get made, and I, I'm curious about that. So unfortunately, mm -hmm. Kino Lorber doesn't have anything else on this disc, but it does look really good on it. Yeah, um, no, it's it's great video presentation, and it just sucks that the only thing on this is maybe a trailer. But I would love like a retrospective or like something like the Paley Fest, like come back and talk about this movie because it really deserves to be talked about. There's a lot of good things about this. Like what were the actors thinking at the time? Because obviously they put their heart into it and in some of the parts and you can tell, but did they, were they questioning the material at the time? Yeah, it says, the Wikipedia said that Mel or the article about that, how it gets made combined with the Wikipedia said that at one point Mel Brooks had to fly out to set and tell them, if y'all don't get it together and start acting, you're all going to be fired. Yeah. So something happened behind the scenes. No, um, well, what so I imagine was going to happen because I know they were trying to film and they had to go back and shoot other things because things weren't working right. And then you have all this money to be spent and everybody's putting up their own money for this. And it went from five million to twenty five million. It's like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> How much is this movie going to cost? 
And I don't know where you go from there because at the time, these actors, you know, they're like, we're in a big, these are big sets. These are big budgets. Like we're doing these action scenes. And then Mel Brooks, like the king of comedy is a producer. And I don't know. I just feel like they're having a good time on set, but maybe not. I Apparently they had a lot of arguments with the director, uh, that choreographer that, that came in to do this. Um, but that's, I remember reading that or hearing that, that they, and that's probably why Mel Brooks came in. It's like, yeah, I'm curious about like what, what arguments took place. What are, uh, you know what they needed? They needed Albert Pion to direct this back then because he was an expert. Uh, he did movies like Cyborg and was that Aliens in LA movie, like Nemesis. Like he's really good at taking recycled sets and making movies out of them. Like he's really good guerrilla filmmaker um, who can just, I, I just, I, I can picture that movie. So um, yeah. So I guess in summation with solar babies, Dan, I know what you said at the beginning, but after talking about it, having, you know, some conversations, is this like a movie you will revisit? Do you care to not revisit it again? Do you think you'll show your kids this movie to show like this was 1986? This was what they considered kids movies back in my day. Or does it like, has it grown on you since you've last watched it? No, I'm good. We talked about some of the, (laughs) some of the other nostalgia we talked about earlier, like, you know, three ninjas, Mighty Ducks, Adventures in Dinosaur City, all those sorts of things. I would show those to my kids or revisit those before I would ever revisit this one again. But having said all that, I think our conversation has got me more interested in kind of the behind the scenes or the saga of bringing something like this to the world. If you can have a movie where it starts off with $5 million, you've got a legend who's mortgaging his home to film this movie, who has to go out to set and tell the cast get your act together or I'm going to fire all of you in the middle of production to finish this movie. And then as we discover on the pod, on the pod here today, they release it wide in less than 700 screens and it doesn't make any money back. I'd like to know what happened with all of that from the producers to the studio, to the distribution, how it would be. So I would be much more interested to see a retrospective, revisiting of solar babies today like if they interviewed some of the cast or interviewed some of the people behind some of the decision making would interest me more than ever watching this movie again no it's the I, dance scene on youtube i mean we could talk about the dance scene on youtube like it's <laughs> check out solar babies dancing you'll see what we're talking about preston <laughs> is this something that you'll show row and full at some point, or is this something, I mean, I know you still have the VHS, you still have the Blu-ray copy like I do. And I really enjoyed it. sounds like you enjoyed it as well. Is this rewatching it again? Do you think you've grown to love it a little more or a little less? Uh, I I love it in a, in another way, which is what I was hinting at. I don't think I can look at it through my kid's eye. Like, not my son, like my eyes when I was a a young kid watching this and kind of feel the magic of it when things didn't exactly, everything didn't click for me uh, at the time. Um, Yeah. So he watched, my son watched most of it. He watched probably the last or an hour of it. Didn't watch the beginning of it, which is probably for the best because it's, there's not a whole lot happening there. Um, So, um, 
Uh, I don't know. I is this gonna be the last time I watch it? I feel like I've my youth ate up quite a bit of the uh, of its of the time uh, watching it, and um, I've watched it. I watched it a couple of years ago when the Kino came out, and this was the last uh the, this last most recent time watching it. I don't know. Maybe I feel like I've 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 given it its fair share. Now I want something else from it. Uh, I want that making of, or I want some of those interviews. Um, maybe we need a 40th anniversary edition uh, in three years. Um, it, where can, can do, do these actors just not feel like they want to be honest about the experience because maybe they still have friendships or uh don't want to piss off mel brooks maybe they wait until mel brooks passes away i don't know i guess i guess time will tell or they'll just go to the grave and we'll never really know oh which is sad because i just i want a big edition of this arrow or somebody please put a big edition of this out uh kino i mean the video looked great but no extras on this i'm i'm disappointed i mean if if rad which i think is like one of the ultimate 80s movies because it also came out the same year in 86 and it has like the soundtrack the the 80s vibes with like the get-ups and the attitude and things like that that this movie also is going for and it's a better version of it it's also uh, a better directed movie um and uh is still charming in a more thorough way but I think all the actors, they know, like, especially Bill Allen for Rad, he knows what kind of movie it is. And I feel like these actors at this point kind of know what this movie is now and they would be honest about it. So, um, yeah, it deserves that. It deserves some of those extra features. Yes, yes, it does. So Solar Babies, um, it's very hard to find. If you can find it on Blu-ray, VHS, DVD, and you're curious, watch it. If you want to watch it for free, Dan, where is it? <laughs> it, was on, it was on Pluto TV. Sponsored <laughs> by Pluto TV. Sponsored yes. with lots of ads. There you go. Um, and maybe at one point, you know, the people at Rift Tracks or Mystery Science Theater 3000 would do an episode on this because, I mean, it's it like begs for that. Oh, it's so uh, good for it. Yeah, so hopefully at some point we'll get that. Uh, but until then, until next next week, um, we are Fear and Loathing in Cinema Podcast. We always enjoy um, you listening. If you have any suggestions, look us up on social media. Let us know what movie you want us to talk about and dive into. Uh, Preston Barta, the man, the myth, the legend. He's at the Denton Record Chronicle. He's at Fresh Fish, fi- FreshFiction.tv. Fresh fishing. Fresh fishing. And uh, you can find him on YouTube. You can find him on Twitter at Preston Barta. And he's on Instagram as Blu-ray Dad. You can find his new amazing interview with uh, Allison Bree and uh, Dave, Dave Franco, Franco very soon. Uh, and it's going to be an awesome one. And then, of course, Dan Moran. We're still trying to get him on all the social media. You can find me here. You can, fi- you can find him here. You can find him on the podcast. And of course, me, Brian Kluger, type me in. You'll find me, High Def Digest, and all that good stuff. Uh, until next week, try out Solar Babies. <laughs>